Hi guys, and welcome to a new episode of Tapis Rouge. I'm your host, Guillaume Cochois, and I'm still recording from my dressing room. <laughs> the shout out of the day goes to David Resnick from Reno, Nevada, who was the first one to find out our guest today, Emily McCarthy. Emily and I actually started our first Cirque du Soleil training in the same time back in 2012. Back then, she was only 16, straight out of sports acro and training for the slippery surface act of Varakai. Since then, she had a spectacular career transitioning from hand-to-hand on Varakai to hand-to-trapeze on Crystal. Also, I wanted to do an episode about eating disorders in the entertainment industry for a while. I think it's something super present, but still very taboo. And Emily was super honest and actually amazingly vulnerable about this topic during our conversation. I'm so proud to share this episode with you guys, and I hope it will inspire you and our industry to become better supports for all our friends and colleagues who might be struggling with eating. So here she is, the fierce Emily McCarthy. Emily, welcome to Tapis Rouge. Hello, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Are you in between cities now? Um, so we just finished two weeks working in Lisbon with Crystal. Mm-hmm. Um, so today is our day off and we premiere here tomorrow. Nice. And what are you performing in Crystal? Uh, so I perform an act called Hand to Trapeze. Um, it's basically a blend of duo trapeze, hand to hand, banking, um, and also with Crystal being an ice skating show, it's uh, got a mix of duo ice skating as well. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty exciting act. For how long have you been doing Crystal for? Uh, so I actually did the uh, Crystal creation. So I've been a part of it since 2012, uh, 2017 when we started um, and I actually helped create the Hunter Trees Act for this show too. Nice. And I know for a fact this is not your first show because we did our very first training at Cirque together back in 2012. It was my first time training for Totem and it was your first time training for Varkai. Yeah, I remember I was thinking about that earlier. It feels so long ago now. Yeah, and it's actually, crazy. it's crazy because because when we started together at headquarters, I was only 16. I'd just finished high school and Barakai was going to be my first show. And now I'm 27 and, and on <laughs> yes. a different show. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to take us from the very beginning? How did you first get involved with circus and Cirque? Um, so I actually started first with artistic gymnastics. Um, apparently I had a lot of energy as a kid. So my parents thought, how are we going to, uh, channel this energy so they put me in gymnastics uh, mainly for to use up the energy that I had but also to learn sort of discipline and you know um, and that sort of stuff in my life so then I did artistic from six years old until 13 and then from 13 to 16 I started acrobatic gymnastics okay. where I became part of the Great Britain gymnastic team um, and I did multiple international and national competitions and I actually got I did a, a circ audition in 2011 where two of the circ scouts came to my gym club and they auditioned a bunch of um, us gymnasts that were there mm-hmm. um, and then I went to the world championships in April 2012 which were held in 
Orlando. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually got approached by two of the Cirque Scouts there after my routine. And they asked me if I'd be interested in joining the company. And then shortly after I got my Barakai contract. So uh, it's really. <laughs> <laughs> did you, was it in your scope to work for Cirque later? Like, it, was it something you wanted to do? Yeah, it was definitely something I always wanted to do since I saw my first Cirque show, which was Kidam. I saw that in 2010 um, and I actually had a friend in that show as well who showed us the backstage and I was just blown away. And I knew from that moment it was something that I really, really wanted and needed to do in my life. It felt like I just knew what I was doing with my future from that moment. Um, But yeah, I am so happy that my life and my career took me to where I am now. Yeah. And how did your family feel? Because you're 16 and just finishing high school. And then you get this offer, you know, that involves traveling abroad, working and like must be intimidating. (laughs) I mean, they always knew that that was something that I wanted to do and that eventually that was going to be a reality. Um, I just don't think they expected it to happen so young. And to be honest, neither did I, because I mean, uh, when I was in competition, I worked with a guy called Chris, who was a few years older than me. Um, And after we did the world championships together, he actually had a contract to go to um, House Dancing Water, Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then some other of the team from my gym club were leaving also, but I was like, okay, I'm too young. I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to keep competing? <laughs> and then the contract was presented and I told my parents and they were like, at first they were like, no, you're too young. You need to finish studying. Um, like you can go in the future. And I was like, listen, <laughs> I want to take it. We don't know if this will ever come around again. Um, so it took a lot of persuading and a lot of tears, but they finally signed the contract and let me go. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember your mom was at IHQ for your training too. Yeah, she was. It was crazy because obviously, like I said, fresh out of school and competition, I had to have a guardian. So for the first um, two weeks that I started at IHQ, my mom actually came with me. They gave her a hotel, uh, not a hotel, they gave her a room at the Cirque Residence where, you know, all as artists stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I had I was living with a family in Montreal who were looking after me during that time. And then when I actually started on tour, um, I had a guardian who sort of looked after me and made sure I was okay and, And things like that. So, and then when I turned 18, obviously I didn't have to have a guardian anymore. <laughs> so for your first two years working on Varikai, you had a guardian. I did. Um, it was a lady called Jess. Um, and on that show, I was doing hand-to-hand. And my porter um, called Andre, it was his girlfriend at the time who was looking after me. They decided to go with her because they wanted someone who was more of a friend figure to me. She was mm-hmm. 25 um, rather than sort of like a mum figure, mm. you know, someone who I'd feel comfortable with and more like a friend. So that was really nice. Nice. And how was your experience starting to work on the show? Oof. <laughs> It was really, really cool. But you can imagine, I so I'm from Leeds. It's a small city in Northern England. Um, and I've done, I'd done a fair bit of traveling before, sir, because of gymnastics competitions. And I was really fortunate with the family holidays growing up and things like that. But coming straight out of school and competition, Straight working in South America, that's where where I joined Farakai. My first city was Buenos Aires. Um, was such a culture shock. 
And as you can probably tell, my accent's already, <laughs> well, it's thick now. So when I started, my accent was way stronger. It was just like a whole thing, but it was so much fun. Um, I kind of wish I could go back and relive it now. Uh, so, and how are the people in your team? Because you're doing the slippery surface. So as a group app with other acrobats. How was your integration with the team and how was the whole vibe? It was really cool. Um, I think they obviously knew I was younger. So a lot of people just sort of took me under my wing and looked after me. Um, I'd say one of the most challenging things that uh, was that the whole team was Russian. Actually, the whole show was, I'd say, was about 90% Russian. So I had to oh, learn. Really? Yeah, I had to learn a little bit of Russian to sort of get get by in the trainings and things like that. Um, but everyone was so lovely. I was just one of the youngest there, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, definitely one of the youngest. So that was kind of strange as well, mixing with older people rather than people my own age. But um, it really helped me grow as a person and in the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And was the culture of training much different from the team of Great Britain? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, when you're in competition, you're training up for that competition. It's really intense, um, sort of. The, the hours we were doing four hours on an evening, sometimes even two hours on the morning, um, just nonstop. Whereas going into Cirque, obviously it's still strict for the training of the show, but it wasn't as intense as the competition training. It was a lot more fun, a lot more um, enjoyable, I'd say, uh, <laughs> than competition. Nice. So you do two years. How, how many years do you do? I did five years. I was a long time on that show, started in 2012 and then um, Barakai went to the UK, the start of 2017. Um, and that's where I ended my contract because I really knew um, sort of my last two years that I was on Barakai that I really wanted to be an aerialist. Um, mm-hmm. but I knew I had to take that leap at some point. So my last two years, I really focused on training aerial hoop and um, other types of aerial disciplines just to make that next step. Um, and then after the UK, felt time. So I finished my contract um, in Glasgow, which was really nice. And I actually got to perform in Leeds, which is my hometown. Oh, really? That must have been amazing. Amazing. And then I got the Crystal contract to start the creation shortly after that. So I had three months off. And then I went to Montreal to start Crystal Creation. Wow, so you did get your opportunity to become an aerialist. That's so cool. I did, yeah. And I was so, so happy. Um, <laughs> so a little bit nervous because obviously I've always been like a acro sport flyer and I trained aerial a little bit, but it's not something that I've ever performed. Um, so when the opportunity came up, I, I had to take it. And I was. it was a combination of being nervous anxious but also really excited and just optimistic so yeah for sure and i feel crystal is such a special show for sir because as you said it's a show on ice so how mm-hmm. was the whole creation process oh it was crazy <laughs> we had a really we had a shorter creation than most uh usually a certain creation is about nine months and ours was actually just four months so it was really quick and obviously there, there was two sides of the creation. There was the skating aspect and then the acrobatics. So then trying to blend those two worlds together to create Crystal was really unique and and just amazing to be a part of. Do all the acrobats have to practice ice skating? Yeah, we did. And actually uh, 
I don't know if I should say this or not, but when I <laughs> offered the crystal contract, one of the questions was, can you ice skate? Um, and I happened to tell them I could when I was really bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> I really wanted the contract. So before uh, going there in those few months that I had off, I was doing ice skating lessons to get myself ready for crystal. But then when we got on, uh, when we arrived in Montreal, there was professional coaches to teach all the acrobats to skate. So. <laughs> <laughs> And could all the acrobats do it decently by the uh, end? Um, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. I think the skaters had a, big, a good laugh watching us trying to uh, skate because for them it's second nature and we were blown away by watching them, like how on earth is this possible? But then that's what made our creation so cool because they look at us and what we're doing um, the, on the acrobat side and they were also blown away about that. So there was just this mutual respect from both sides that okay this is going to be something really special yes for sure and so how was the part of you starting to train and perform aerial um so that was pretty scary and really exciting i actually remember one of the first times that i ever saw um duo trapeze was with you um mm -hmm. we were training for barakai and i saw your guy your guy's presentation before going on torso and stuff And I was like blown away. Um, and I was like, okay, that's something that I'd like to see for myself in the future. So then the first day on uh, crystal creation, and I got to go up on a duo trapeze, which I'd never, ever done before. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was just so special because I was like, okay, this is something that I've dreamed of. And now it's here. Yeah. So then getting up on that training was, was so cool with the coaches, learning the technique, because obviously this was my my first time doing it and I had to learn a lot. Um, and it was just really nice to feel that support from Cirque, you know, teaching us and, and being patient, understanding that we're from a different background, but then given the opportunity to do, to do that was really cool. But then also always having in the back of your mind, okay, there's ice underneath me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's that true. was pretty scary. So, but yeah. Yeah. Because uh, on Totem we had a mat, but on Crystal you have, people and ice so it's yeah. for sure it must have been pretty scary at the beginning yeah i mean at first figuring out how to work because i worked with uh, a guy called jack i'm sure you know him jack atherton mm -hmm. he's so learning to work together we'd already worked together uh on the floor in hand-to-hand -hand acrobatics but first mm -hmm. time in the air so figuring that out and then also adding the aspect of the porters so we did a lot of tricks from going from the boys underneath, throwing up to the trapeze to Jack and then back down and workshopping all those things. Um, and then sort of understanding, okay, I don't have a crash mat or a safety net. I've actually just got to trust and rely on these people. But if something does mm -hmm. go wrong, uh, it's just ultimate trust and, and just hoping and trusting that they're going to be there to catch me if, you know, if something does happen. So that was pretty hard to get my head around. Did you do like fall practice or you were like trained to just kind of just drop from the trapeze and the guys down, like underneath would catch you? We kind of did, but just in the launch and things. And we did a lot of talking like, okay, if this goes wrong, how are we going to catch it and making sure that they know, knew the best hand positions and ways. Or even for me, there's one where I'm lying on my back and they throw me up and I bring up mm. my knee and they catch me under the knee. And if that doesn't make it high enough for him to catch me, that I'll come back down flat. So having those mm -hmm. discussions, like, because you, you don't have a mat underneath. And for most of the hand to trapeze act, 
it is over the ice. There's just one section at the end where we bring out a little uh, rollout mat, <laughs> which isn't mm-hmm. very, very big. Um, but yeah, it was a really <laughs> cool experience to learn to trust these people. And then obviously we're on the road. So people leave, we get new people in. So there's always that relearning to trust. And But yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful act and show to be a part of. Yeah, for sure. I remember on with a head coach on totem at some point who wanted to make both Sarah and I learn how to fall from the trapeze. So we did like, the, so we did like one drop from me in a catcher position and Sarah and just her dropping on her back. And I remember she was looking at me like, like oh. that, that sucks. And the coach was like, okay, Guillaume, now you drop from the trapeze into the mat. I remember saying like, no, I won't do that. Like if <laughs> the chances are, the chances are very small. And if it happens, I'll figure something out, but that, that doesn't look, Really fun. And plus there is two shows today. So I just, you know. I don't understand the logic behind it, but it's just never fun to, <laughs> to do that. For sure. And then so you do the four months of creations, the show opened and I mean, it's an instant success. I remember I came to see one of the run at the arenas and the show looked really great. And I remember when the show opened officially, all the reviews were super great. Like mm-hmm. it was, it became like an inst- yeah, instant classic. Yeah, I think... Um... Because obviously with it being Cirque du Soleil's very first ice skating show, um, people were curious. People wanted to see what it was all about and how to, how they made this work. And it is a very different, um, it's very, very different to any other Cirque, any other show that Cirque's produced. Um, I'd say it's built more, not as a, a typical Cirque du Soleil show as here. Um, say on Barakai, we sort of had our act and a few cues Whereas here, mm-hmm. everyone does everything. It's it's pretty full on from the, the minute the show starts, you're on stage, you're on and off stage, helping out in other people's acts, uh, lots and lots of costume changes, um, putting your crampons on, which are the shoes that we use to be able to run on the ice as acrobats, um, taking them off, putting your skates on, all the way up until your act, until the finale, everyone is in the entire show, um, which is really cool. And also... Um, what kind of took me by surprise was in the creation, we have pop songs. So we've got like Halo uh, by Beyonce. We've got um, A Beautiful mm. Day, You Too, like all these songs. So I think it was just something so different um, that people just were really captiv- captivated by the show from from the beginning that we mm-hmm. took it to the road. <laughs> yes, for sure. And how do you like it to basically have more of a higher workload like being on stage all the time doing all the cues multiple acts it's something that's that you like compared to your experience on Varikai yeah I love it uh don't get me wrong it is very hard <laughs> especially when we have like big <laughs> weekends when this weekend actually we have a double show Friday a triple show Saturday and a double show Sunday so that's when yeah. you start to feel it you know and um we do we have a great stage management team who help with the rotation so making mm-hmm. sure not one person's not doing um, way more than another, you know. Um, but it is so much fun to be a part of all of it and it, it keeps it exciting, switching around the cues and, and things like that, but it does get tiring. <laughs> <laughs> <For sure. laughs> now that you're full on a trapeze artist, like the, exactly the way you wanted when you started, when you were 16, do you have any other discipline or any other act that you would like to develop in the future? Yeah, I've always been really interested in duo straps. Um, It's not something that I have uh, ventured too much into yet. 
Um, but it is something that I'd like to try and do in the future. Um, also, I have never performed a solo act. So that's maybe mm. something that I'd be interested in in doing sort of after Crystal 2. Um, but I've, I've, I've got some ideas, but I'm not entirely sure what it would be yet. But I've just completely fallen in love with Ariel. So I mm. feel like that's the direction that I want to keep going in. Seeing how you transition from hand to hand flyer to do trapeze, I have no doubt you'll have a fantastic transition from trapezes to whatever other venture you'll choose. No. <laughs> <laughs> Our partner in this episode is Circus Talk, the online carrier marketplace for circus and the performing arts. Circus Talk is the new thing that is great for our international circus community. It is an amazing information resource bringing news, events and industry trends to us, professionals working in the field. What also makes Circus Talks amazing is their first online casting platform that connects talents and talent seekers in circus and performing arts. If you're a talent seeker, You can finally post jobs and auditions in a professional and transparent way, instead of using social media accounts. There are already over 28,000 artist profiles on Circus Talk that talent seekers can search while talents can find jobs and apply to them via the Circus Talk platform. You can get your first month free on both Circus Talk Talent and Talent Seeker Pro membership by using the promo code Tapis Rouge in one word. So go to circustalk.com, sign up to Pro and use the code Tapis Rouge to find your spotlight with our partner, Circus Talk. All right, guys, a little side story now. Back in 2014, I hurt my back training backstage before a show. The pain was so intense, I couldn't put my socks on, sit for more than two minutes, and obviously, it took me out of the show for quite some time. I followed a strict core rehabilitation program and after six weeks, I got back on stage, but I kept having recurring pain. So I started to educate myself about core anatomy, rehab training, and pain science. I wanted to understand why am I doing all these exercises if the pain keeps coming back? The more I was learning, the more I understood I had to change. I started switching exercises, tweak some techniques and executions and also completely changed my perception of pain. After a couple of weeks, on top of reducing considerably my pain level, I was feeling so much stronger, which increased my confidence to move and better perform on stage. My life overall was so much better. Finally, I was pain-free and not scared to hurt my back again. I had a lot of artists and athlete friends who saw that happening and asked me, hey, What did you do for your back? And I thought, I could put it all out in a clear and clean way instead of always pulling random videos on YouTube and giving quick guidance. So I reached out to all the best doctors, physiotherapists and performance medicine specialists whom I met touring and asked them to help me develop Protocol Cut to the Core. Protocol Cut to the Core is the first rehab and strengthening protocol for back or hip pain that also includes a comprehensive course in core anatomy, biomechanics, and pain science. It is approved by doctors, physios, and performance medicine specialists 
from five different countries. If you are suffering from acute or persistent back or hip pain, you can find protocol Cut to the Core on our website at cuttothecorefitness.com. When movement is an issue, movement is the solution. And now, let's get back to the show. I wanted to talk to you because I feel that eating is such a taboo mm -hmm. in the circus and in sports. And I, yes. I feel that we see so many little things. Like uh, on Totem, I saw little things. Um, when I followed my wife on Amaluna, I saw a lot of little things. She talked to me about stuff that she was seeing on when she was on Varakai too. And yeah, I just feel there is so much wrong happening in the industry, but mm -hmm. that no one is really talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's in many aspects of sport, maybe not just uh, gymnastics or circus or acrobatics, but I mean, from a personal experience coming from competition mm -hmm. um, and being a competitive acrobat, that is a massive part of it. You're training so much um, and you're always sort of, your coach is pushing you to make sure that you're, you're uh, light and that you're not over a certain weight and that you look a certain way um, and things like that. And sort of those um, things that you've brought up with and you have to grow with as a little little gymnast how old were you when you first started to hear from your coaches mm. this concern about food and about weight and about appearance um so i'd say that started more when because i told you i did artistic gymnastics before but i wasn't super high level at that i feel like that was a great place for me to start out but that wasn't for me it was more when i started the acro sport that i really started to notice that and it was sort of in my first week Um, starting at my gym club um, that I got put on the scales and they weighed me and for me at that point I was only 13 um, and it sounds crazy but I only weighed 22 kilograms 22 kilograms oh my god I was absolutely tiny all the way through school I was the just this tiny little uh, gymnast girl that was always what I was known as and And um, yeah, so. So it was a natural, just you had a really fast metabolism naturally. And this is just like, you, yeah. you never really been careful about what you ate. You were just yeah. enjoying food in a normal way, but you were just naturally thin. Absolutely. For me, I've always been naturally very slim. I've always had um, a very natural fast metabolism. It's not really been something um, that, I have necessarily needed to focus on, but being surrounded by it and being in uh, an environment where other people don't have the metabolism that I have, you know, and the coaches might be on at them more um, saying that they eat too much or, or that they need to go run 10 laps around the track to, to sweat out the, you know, some weight to try and make them slimmer. Um, getting weighed twice a session sometimes was a little twice bit. Twice a session? We used, to, we used to get weighed at the start of a session and at the end. And from what I understand, obviously I'm no longer in competition, um, but that doesn't happen anymore. I don't mm -hmm. think they're allowed to do that, which I think is fantastic because yeah. even for someone like me that didn't have to watch what I ate and things like that, 
it it triggered it in me that I I did have to, even though I didn't. So it was always a constant battle with. I'm still talking about competition, but so I'd finish school, um, sort of around three p.m. and I'd have to go uh, straight to the gym. So sometimes I'd have time to go home and. My mom will cook me uh, my dinner for before I go. But obviously, I've got four hours training. I don't want to eat a big plate of food before mm-hmm. because I know that I have to do flips and handstands. And yeah, you don't sure. want to do all of those things feeling full. Um, so it was a constant battle between me and my mom to make sure that I was eating enough to be able to fuel me for the training, but then not eating too much that I'd get in trouble with my coach or... Um, that my partner would think that I feel heavy and you know all these things I had uh, I had two part well I actually started in a woman's trio so Mm -hmm. I worked with two girls before um, and they were always super cool and they never worried about my weight or anything like that Um, and then I worked with another partner called Chris um, an acro sport uh, a mixed pair in acro spot mm-hmm. um and he was also really cool with me but then other people around me um the other flyers and things were really struggling with the with food and eating and it, it was hard to see and I think I sort of got dragged along with it a little bit even though I didn't need to be if that makes sense I don't know yeah for sure because even though you don't have that need if you're living within that culture it's hard to stay fully permeable to that like for sure it must influence you in some way yeah and your mom she never did she ever get triggered or like was it something like oh it's part of the the sport it's normal i'm following or did she had conversation with you about not having that become an obsession or like making sure you have to stay healthy and yeah, I see. I'm really, really fortunate with my with my mom and my family having such a supportive um, group of people around me who never let me um, get into those things. I'm I can say that I'm quite lucky. I never really had, or what I would say is an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always had funny little traits with food that have been brought that I've never sort of left me from my competition days. Um, but my mom was always making sure that I was eating enough and uh, drinking enough water and things like that. Like sometimes even when we were in competition, we were scared to drink water in the training because we knew that we were going to get weighed at the end. Really? So we were like, yeah. So a lot of the times we'd go without, like if we finished a, a routine, like maybe just having a sip of water, um, just enough to wet your mouth you know so you you feel the relief of that but then um it was really difficult and thinking back on it uh is is traumatizing um it's 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 something that's definitely still affected me up until today like mm-hmm. sometimes I can I I feel myself slipping back into little patterns and ways that I used to be um and even fr- like I talk about it often. I've got a friend on Crystal mm-hmm. who was also on Barakai with me. Um, and we went through these same sort of struggles, like n- not eating enough to fuel us for a show and trying to remind ourselves, okay, we're not in competition anymore. We don't need to eat these tiny little portions and, yeah. you know, avoid certain foods. We can eat a well-balanced diet and still uh, be healthy and look good and, 
you know, to perform a show. But sometimes we weren't even eating enough to fuel our bodies to go and do sort of eight to 10 shows a week. That's crazy. Um, and it's those habits that followed us from competition that sort of was hard to let go of when we started our surf journeys. And I'd say that almost every uh, acro sport flyer that I know probably still has uh, trauma around that topic. And for some people, it's not easy to talk about. Yes, um, for sure. And it's something, if I do interviews and things like that, it's something that people are very interested to know more about. Um, so it's really cool to talk to you about it today. I know it is really difficult for people to talk about it because even when you notice friends who you see not eating enough or like ritual around food, like when they make a plate and they put food in it, like they make sure certain food don't touch each other. So like, I don't want yeah. my broccoli to touch this. And then if the food start to touch, they throw everything away. And when you see this happening, you're like, e there is something there, but it's difficult to approach even with friends. Mm -hmm. And that is so true, what you said there about the um, sort of making a plate, but making sure things don't touch. That's definitely something that I used to do that I didn't see as an issue. Um, I used to get a smaller plate rather than a bigger plate, but then I'd make sure the food didn't touch. So then I'm definitely not eating enough because one, I'm eating off a smaller plate mm -hmm. and there's space around the food that I'm eating. Um, and I didn't see that as an issue before. Um, and that was sort of when I started on Barakai and someone pointed it out to me um, that I was doing that. And I never noticed that I was doing it because it was just normal for me, mm -hmm. kind of, you know. Um, but then now when you see those sort of things and um, I mean, everyone has their own way of doing doing it. But yeah, there, there are those extremes. I remember one time in competition um, that a friend on the team had some grapes on a plate and I didn't mm. think anything of it. And I just took one grape and I ate it. Um, and my friend got really upset and like you said, threw them away. Um, because I guess I, without thinking that that person had a certain amount of grapes that they wanted to eat mm -hmm. and I ruined it for them, you mm -hmm. know? It can be this or it can be like people have such strict ritual around food. Mm -hmm. If it's like I have 10 grapes in this plate at this moment and then you like change one aspect of the ritual and all of a sudden they feel they don't control their food intake yeah. anymore. And that is becoming an issue because there is such an obsession around it. So then they have to like start all over again. And that's definitely yeah. a sign that there is a trouble with the eating Absolutely. habits. And I think... Um... I think it does need to be spoken about more, these sorts of conversations, because uh, obviously I'm sure a lot of people still struggle with it today. And what we need to remember is that eating, you shouldn't feel guilty for eating. You should eat. The reason that we eat is to fuel our bodies and to help us achieve what we want to achieve, especially as a performer. If I'm just eating Uh, a tiny, tiny amount of whatever it is. And then I'm going to burn all these calories doing a full sh two hour show, then it's not healthy. So it, it needs to be talked about and recognized so that people can start helping themselves and, and performing mm -hmm. to even more of a higher quality, you know? And you, as a flyer, how would you perceive that balance that? 
to be able to do partner acrobatics, whether it's on the trapeze or on the ground, to be able to succeed, to perform the act, certain level of tricks with that high volume of repetition, 10 show weeks, 400 shows a year. The person throwing has to be big and the person being thrown has to be small. So how do you achieve that, but while maintaining healthy habits? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as a flyer, it's always in the back of your mind that, you know, someone is picking you up and throwing you around and and that's the, the nature of the job. So it is like, okay, I, I want to be respectful and, and, and have a well-balanced diet so that I'm able to, one, perform well for myself, but also make it easier for the person that I'm working with. But whilst being healthy and not going down those sort of toxic routes um, with food. So, I mean, for me, it's taken me a long time to get here, but I, I'm in a really good place with food and my nutrition mm-hmm. um, and making sure that I'm eating well-balanced meals, decent portions, which is something that I haven't always been able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes in my life, eating a full plate of food was impossible. And I used to really... Uh, for me going to a restaurant with friends filled me with anxiety because I was scared that I wouldn't be able to finish the meal and I'd sort of get judged or I don't want to waste food but I knew I wouldn't be able to eat it so sometimes I'd avoid those things Um, but when you're working with a partner on stage I think especially during the amount of shows that we do um, it's understanding that we need to fuel our bodies and that's what what the bottom line is so yeah just making sure you're eating enough of the right foods and eating there's nothing wrong with eating chocolate and cake and and things like that in moderation you know so Mm -hmm. not denying yourself those luxuries Mm -hmm. but then not eating so much of them that you might impact your performance Mm -hmm. yeah obviously you're out of the competition world now but do you see changing around that culture in the competition world like do you have friends who are competing now or like do you talk with younger generation who have gone through it is there an effort from the federations to try to prevent this type of yeah i believe so i mean i went into my gym club uh, my old gym club a few years ago and i spoke to some old coaches and some of the gymnasts that were still there who were a lot younger than me at the time i was there that are still competing and things like that. Um, and I think a lot of uh, rules have been implemented. For example, not weighing the gymnasts is a big thing because mm-hmm. if you're seeing a number on your scale and you eat something and it goes up, then obviously that's going to be so triggering and traumatizing in your head. Mm-hmm. And that's where it stems from. So I think that's um, a super positive change. Um in the world, but I'm not so I'm I'm not following the acro sport world as much as I used to. And one of the main reasons that I stopped following it is because it was triggering and traumatizing from uh, yeah, I understand. my time doing it, you know. So obviously now I'm in a much better place, but at first it was hard to to look back because competition was hard. But I mean, I'm also grateful for what I went through because it's got me to where I am today, even though it was hard and I don't agree with a lot of the uh, things that we had to go through. 
running 10 laps before we mm-hmm. even start a four-hour training, um, getting weighed as soon as you've finished running, getting weighed as soon as you've finished your training session, you know, not being allowed to have a sip of water <laughs> in the session or, if you know, having a proper drink. Things like That's that crazy. were stressful. And, uh, yeah, I think it has got much better. Um, another thing that's not sort of food related, but the way that we used to get stretched, you know, in order to achieve uh, some of the tricks that we did in competition, we had to go through quite a vigorous stretching mm-hmm. um, portion of the training where sometimes we might have uh, our feet up on a bench and then our coach sat on our knees, you know, to overstretch them. Um so I think there's more rules implemented for those things not to happen now, which is good. Yeah. And also if you're dehydrated, that level of stretching, if your muscle are dehydrated, is the perfect recipe for injury too. But I think as little gymnasts um, in that environment, uh, you don't know any better. You really don't know any better than, uh, than that because that's sort of what you brought up around. It's what everyone else is going through, um, just like you are. And I... I hope that now, especially in competition, that people, the little gymnasts, are getting the understanding that you need to eat a, a meal in order for you to put out um, as much energy and power into your training as you can. Mm-hmm. You need to hydrate your muscles and hydrate yourself in order to achieve. Yeah, for sure. And that's not something that I necessarily knew. Mm-hmm. I obviously did, but not to the extent that I do now. Yeah, for sure. And you said that when you started on Varikai, you were definitely the youngest one. And you had a lot of people who were mentoring you. Did these people help with the nutrition aspect? Did they saw that you had have developed unhealthy habits and they're able to like help you navigate these and develop healthier patterns? Yeah, I think um, when I did actually start with Varakai and I arrived on the tour, it was kind of uh, difficult for some people to see the inhabits um, that I had. Um, and people made comments and tried to uh, sort of help that and change my mindset and things. Um, and it did actually get to the point where I did have to speak to a nutritionist. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, from CERC that CERC provided. Um, and I think sometimes... Some of the things that were said helped with that, but um, other things I'm not sure they really understood mm-hmm. the aspect of what it entailed for us as little gymnasts and the, the, the struggles we've been through to where we are now. Mm-hmm. So. so you said that CERC did provide some level of support, like they did try, but maybe they didn't have as deep of an understanding of where these habits came from. Yeah, I'd say, well, for an, for example, uh, when I was on Barakai, I was oof, like 41 kilograms, something like that. So I was fairly small. Yeah. Um, at, that's at like 16, 17 years old. Um, so then speaking to the nutritionist, um, they suggested things like maybe getting some meat and dipping it into cheese, like cheese fondue. And I was mm-hmm. like, that it's so heavy and, you know, like, and why you're trying to suggest something like that. 
But for me, instantly, I was like, no, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. Yeah. But one thing that I found really interesting is that there is um, a study that was conducted in 2015 by Kristen McCulbert about the psychological profile that are more prone to develop eating disorder. And one of the one of these is the perfectionists. And so people who are perfectionists have twice as more mm-hmm. chances to develop eating disorders. So I feel that yeah. for athletes and especially in a Cirque du Soleil setup, it's like the perfect environment to develop that because you are repeating the same act 10 times a week, 400 times a year. And so the only thing that you really have to do is to perfect that six minutes you have on stage. And so you, yeah. and you're in that constant mindset of like getting it better and better and better. So that already is a climate that can um, condition you to become super anal about details and super perfectionist. And that's like, if already you, if, if you have an underlying um, upbringing around eating disorder, it's like the perfect recipe for developing these. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, this environment, what we do as artists, being a perfectionist is part of it. And I know that's true for me. I want every single little movement that I do on stage to be absolutely perfect. And I always want to give um, the best performance I can to everyone who's watching in the audience, you know, whether that's the person's seventh Cirque du show they're watching or first one, everyone is watching it and everyone deserves the right performance. But I think being a perfectionist is a blessing and a curse because um, it makes me the eyes that I am and deliver and perform the way that I do. But then, like you said, going to the the other side of it and the taboos of eating and things like that and the eating disorders, uh, it also played a part in that too. So. What would be the advices you could give to younger artists or athletes who think they might be in a situation where they're struggling with some eating disorder? Um, I would definitely say reach out to someone. Um, if anyone is ever struggling with anything like that, I'm my DMs are always open to reach out to me mm-hmm. uh, because I know that's something that I've struggled with and I wish I had uh, more people there to understand me when I was sort of going through those things. Um, so speak to people and understand that you're not alone. Um, also, it will get easier and also just keep going because even though right now it might feel hard and like you're stuck you're you will get past it and it will be the best day once you start to see food in a different light um the way that I did that you that is there to fuel you and help you with your performance it's not a negative thing you know so it's not something that we should be ashamed of you know mm-hmm. A lot of little gymnasts who sort of were brought up in that environment that I was um, might feel like it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Robert, thank you so much for this advice. I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have one last question for you. Yeah. A bit silly one. If tomorrow <laughs> aliens would land on Earth, okay. how would you explain Cirque du Soleil to them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, I think it, I mean, I think it's uh, a weird, wacky place, so they'll probably understand it. <laughs> um, gosh, 
That is a weird question. <laughs> um, I don't think you can explain it. I don't think you can explain it. It's just a, a crazy, weird place, and I love being a part of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. It's a good answer. Bye-bye, Emily. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time, and thank you so much for opening opening up around that topic and I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be very inspired by your words. So really oh. thank you for taking that step forward and talking about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. And uh, it's really cool that 11 years later, after we started our Cirque journey together, here we are chatting. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's been awesome. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Bye. What a gem, right? At her level, speaking this way, so honestly and so vulnerable, what a fantastic example. I hope that this will inspire us to be maybe more aware and more supportive with our loved ones who might be struggling with eating. I also would like to share with you guys two websites. The first is anad.org or you can search on Google for the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. They both provide amazing free support groups and resources to help you guys if you need. If you enjoyed this episode, you can now take a little moment to give us a good rating and review. It really makes a difference for Tapio Rouge. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CircusTalk.com or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Now, my friends, that's it for today. I gotta go. I got staging. So... I'm going to wish you guys a great week. If you have a show, rock the house. You know what to do. And as we say in the circus, see you down the road.